basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and welcome to the third season of Terranauts. I've done a lot of thinking about the show over the summer. When I first started the podcast two years ago, it was really, I don't know, to scratch an itch that I'd had for a while. My idea was that while most people know about the space program, at least its big events, most of what they know is the story told from the perspective of the people who go to space. The astronauts and the cosmonauts and the taikonauts. But, of course, those are only a very small fraction of the people actually involved in going to space. The vast majority of people, including me, who are involved in getting humanity and its inventions off the planet, um, have never actually traveled there, at least not physically. But I also know from having worked in this field for 30 years that the stories of the people who work in space but who don't go there are still very interesting. At least they have always seemed so to me and to the people that I've been telling those stories to for all that time. So Terranos was created so that I could have an excuse not only to tell those stories, but to find more of those stories to tell. In my first season, I spent most of my time looking for other Terranauts who had stories to tell and in telling some of my own favorite stories. Uh, but toward the end of Season 1, I started to get more interested in the history of the space program, and I decided that telling the story of how we got to space, from the perspective of the people who made it happen from the ground, was also something I wanted to do. And so, in the second season, I spent quite a few episodes tracing the history of the space program from the first Terranauts through at least the first Western space program, which was Project Mercury. Along the way, I learned a lot. A lot of what I learned was not about the history of the space program, although a lot of it certainly was. Now, I also learned a lot about the art of making a regular podcast. I learned a lot, I think, about how to tell the story I wanted to tell. And I also learned a lot about how um, I, and what I enjoyed about the experience. And then at the end of the season, things really came together for me. It actually started last winter when Mac Evans, a friend of the show, and one of my first interviews talked to me about an idea he had for a story we could tell on Terranauts. Mac had been in mission control during one of the seminal moments in space history, although a lesser-known seminal moment, and he'd also been witness to some high drama in mission control, although, again, the story was almost unknown beyond the people who'd been witness to it. What is more, Mac had tapes. I keep coming back to this fact, I know, but the fact of the matter is that it's actually pretty rare to have an audio record of what goes on in mission control. Of, of course, we always have the recordings of what gets said between the ground and on orbit though, or space. Those conversations, after all, happen uh, on the public airwaves. But we have almost no recordings of the conversations going on behind the scenes, on the loops, as we say in MCC. This might not be obvious, since the one exception to that rule is, of course, Apollo 11, in which quite literally every word spoken into a microphone during the whole mission is a matter of public record. And it's fascinating, too, 
by the way. If you ever want to profitably waste a few hours, you should go look it up. I'll post a link on the Terranauts Facebook page. Um, and also, by the way, once we get to Apollo 11, I suspect that the audio library is going to provide some fodder for some really interesting episodes. But anyways, the point was that Mac was providing the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and tell a really interesting story about what it was really like to work in space, even when you are literally stuck on the ground. I took him up off the offer, um, and I'm glad I did. The two-part episode that eventually became The Flag is a One um, is my clear favorite of all of the episodes I have done. Uh, based on the feedback from a few listeners, it was a real fan favorite as well. Which has made me think, obviously, that I need to work at making more episodes like that. I need to find ways not just of telling the history of spaceflight from the Terranauts' perspective, but also of talking to other Terranauts about their experiences as well. So, before we get started, I should say that anyone out there who is a Terranaut and who has some stories to tell, I would really love to hear from you. You can drop me a message at the Terranauts Facebook page, or you can email me at terranauts at sidekick65.com. But I also have some good news. We are going to start Season 3 off with another series of episodes that culminates in talking to some Terranauts about how an important time in the history of human spaceflight. Specifically, I am going to have the great privilege of talking to some Terranauts who have been living history at his, as it has been being made for the last 20 years. The guests I have lined up have been working as robotics flight controllers in, mission con in the Mission Control Center of the International Space Station since, well, before it was a space station. They have been witness to and participants in a true revolution in the way that Terranauts and astronauts work together, and also in the way that countries of the world go to space together. And I'm really excited about that conversation. But before we get there, in typical Terranauts fashion, we need to go back a ways. Well, quite a ways, in fact. Um, I remember listening to one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Hardcore History, in which host Dan Carlin once admitted that part of the reason his episodes are so long, and they really are, is that he is addicted to context beginning to understand what he means. So before we can jump into the revolution in mission control that happened at the turn of the millennium, we're going to have to go back and understand where mission control came from. Now, we have talked a bit about this in the series on Project Mercury, but in that case, we kind of jumped over part of the story in the middle. So to really understand where mission control came from, we have to go back even 50 years beyond Project Mercury. Because 1915 is the year that the National Advisory Council on Aeronautics was formed by an act of the United States Congress. NACA, as it was known, would of course become the predecessor, uh, the predecessor and precursor to NASA, being effectively dissolved and recreated as NASA in 1958. But more importantly, it would become an organization that, as much as any other, invented and refined the art of testing aircraft technology, which, of course, meant testing aircraft as they were in flight, which means that the origins of what we call flight control really came from NACA. Now, NACA, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, was formed on the 3rd of March, 1915, with a charter to, quote, supervise and direct the scientific study of the problems of flight with a view to their practical solution, unquote. 
the formation of NACA was really an American response to the fact that the Europeans had taken over leadership in the field of aviation, despite the fact that the Wright brothers had been the first to fly successfully in a powered aircraft. NACA started out slowly, but gradually through the period between the two world wars, it built a solid reputation for detailed analysis and careful testing that allowed it to make important contributions to the emergence, uh, emerging science and engineering of flight. As much as anything, NACA was a trailblazer in developing the methods by which aircraft engineering could actually be done. One of the important challenges that uh, aircraft engineering and aviation posed to engineers is um, finding a way to follow the classic engineering or scientific approach of breaking a problem down into manageable pieces and solving the whole problem incrementally. Um, such an approach simply couldn't work when the system under development was an aircraft. You pretty much had to solve the whole problem of getting the aircraft into the air and having it stay there. You had to get that under control in order to test any part of the problem. As such, um, early aviation engineers could understand the problems that they needed to solve, like how to maximize lift and speed while minimizing drag. Um, they could even begin to develop theories about how to solve those problems, but they didn't really have a way of testing their theories in any manageable way, which is where the wind tunnel came in. Some of NACA's most er, uh, important early contributions were in demonstrating that wind tunnel facilities could actually be used to do real engineering on an aircraft. The wind tunnel, if it isn't obvious, is just a controlled environment in which wind is blown through, well, a tunnel. At the outlet of the tunnel, there is a test cell in which pieces of an aircraft, or a model of an aircraft, or even a whole aircraft, if the tunnel is big enough, can be placed in the flowing air. Um, the rig is instrumented to allow measurements to be made regarding the flow of the air. Various forces like drag and lift can be measured or calculated. Small changes can be made and results can be analyzed. With the advent of the wind tunnel, aircraft engineers were suddenly back on solid ground, as it were. They were back to doing the solid, systematic, uh, analytical work that was the basis for all good engineering development work. And uh, the dividends were pretty immediate. Uh, diligent work at NACA in the 1920s and 30s contributed significantly to the emerging field of aerodynamics. Hard as, it, hard as it is for us to believe it today, it was actually work at NACA that demonstrated that fixed landing gear, which were the norm in the early days of flight, actually contributed almost half the drag experienced by an aircraft. And that's why there's a sudden shift in the 1930s towards aircraft with retractable landing gear. Like, I mean, this seems like a pretty obvious choice in hindsight, but at the time, it was a genuine debate with, between the extra drag of the fixed gear and the extra weight and complexity of retractable gear. And it was only resolved with the engineering test data that was provided by NACA. It also helped to develop a culture at NACA that was devoted to the disciplined application of the modern methods of engineering, and it, it pretty much persists today. And that is first, analyze a problem and develop an analytical models to understand how it should behave. Then test those predictions using incrementally more complex models in controlled settings. Finally, assemble the final article and confirm those findings in increasingly complex tests in the real world. Chances are, if you've ever developed a new instrument, system, or even a piece of software code, you've followed something that approximates this method. 
1930 in aviation, it was not the method that was the issue. It was how to apply it. And engineers and scientists at NACA were at the forefront of setting that standard. And that meant that as well as spending a lot of time in the wind tunnel testing, they also had to spend a lot of time figuring out how to confirm the results of that testing in the real world. And that meant using real aircraft. And of course, the challenge was that real aircraft uh, were not just flying laboratories. They also had to be functioning aircraft that took off and flew and landed safely, no matter what changes engineers wanted to make in order to test their theories. As well, aircraft um, exhibit a distressing tendency not to stay in one place for very long, and the early ones really had no facilities for taking experimenters along for the ride so that they could continue to make their measurements. Um, all of this means that a whole new discipline, that of flight test, had to be developed, and it also spawned a brand new profession, that of test pilot. Combining the mindset of the engineer with the skills and training of a pilot, test pilots needed to be able not only to fly very precisely so as to make data collection predictable and repeatable, but they also had to be expert observers, assimilating not only data from their instruments, but also cataloging their observations and sensations as they flew at the edges of the performance envelope of their aircraft. So this new discipline of flight testing was going to demand the collaboration of the engineers on the ground who knew what data they wanted to collect, and the pilots in the aircraft who would have to fly the aircraft precisely in order to collect that data. It was during the 1930s in establishments like NACA that this new discipline of flight testing was developed and honed. One group at NACA that grew to depend particularly heavily on flight testing was the Operational Research Group at the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland. This group was formed to look at problems related to the operation of aircraft as opposed to problems related to their design. One of the problems that became a particular focus for the group was that of icing. Icing is what happens when an aircraft flies through a cloud where the atmospheric conditions are such that the water droplets in the cloud are super cooled such that when they hit the metal surface of the aircraft, they freeze immediately. Uh, obviously, this can be dangerous and even fatal for an aircraft, the buildup of ice adds a huge amount of weight and can effectively destroy the aerodynamic properties of the surfaces it adheres to. Modern passengers can testify to how serious a problem icing can be every time they wait on the tarmac to be de-iced prior to taking off during the winter at northern airports. Uh, we wouldn't go to all of the trouble of doing this if it wasn't really important. During World War II, icing was becoming a serious problem as the U.S. and Allied aircraft were increasingly being called upon to fly into icing conditions in order to fulfill, fulfill their missions over Germany and even over Japan in certain conditions. So NACA was asked to work on understanding and solving the icing problem. One of the things that researchers discovered fairly quickly is that icing is an effect that is quite difficult to reproduce in a controlled setting, like a wind tunnel. Their early attempts to build an icing wind tunnel so they could study the problem in the lab, quote-unquote, were pretty much abject failures. They simply couldn't replicate real-world effects in their wind tunnel, even with a sophisticated refrigeration system provided by the carrier company who specialized in industrial-grade refrigeration. Instead, the researchers had to rely purely on flight testing in order to collect the data they needed, and this meant deliberately sending aircraft into icing clouds, 
and conducting specific test profiles in order to understand how the aircraft interacted with the cloud and the physics of how the ice formed. Then they had to take this carefully <laughs> and courageously, collect the data back to the lab, and come up with a model that agreed with the data. Finally, with that in hand, they were eventually able to design and build an icing wind tunnel that acted like a real icing cloud. It was actually a very impressive engineering achievement because it basically meant inventing a whole new engineering discipline that depended on doing experiments in the real world, learning from them, and creating new ways of modeling processes that could not be observed in the lab, learning from those models, and then being able to predict what would happen when the conditions were changed or affected. This, at least to me, sounds an awful lot like the skills that would be needed by the first Terranauts, as they set out on their journey to create the discipline of spaceflight operations. And, in fact, a significant proportion of the new flight operations directorate of the Space Task Group, which eventually became Project Mercury, um, came from the icing team at Lewis. Of course, another NACA program, which donated several key alumni to the Flight Operations Directorate and the Space Task Group, more generally, was the X-1 program. This was the U.S. program to break the sound barrier, and whose test pilot famously was Chuck Yeager. The X-1 was not the first man-made object to break the sound barrier, the most famous previous example being, of course, the V-2 during the Second World War. But the X-1 was the first piloted air vehicle to do it in a controlled and a survivable way. Aircraft had been flirting with the sound barrier throughout the latter years of the Second World War, and a number of late-war piston-engine fighters were capable of reaching high subsonic speeds if they dove steeply at high altitudes. Um, the P-38 Lightning was actually quite notorious for its poor handling qualities at high subsonic speeds due to a phenomenon called compressibility, uh, where the air flowing over the control surfaces changes its fundamental properties as the speed of sound is approached, leading to ineffective or even unexpected control responses. Um, in fact, more than one P-38 pilot was killed in the process of finding out that they had inadvertently entered a region of flight where the airflow over their control surfaces had reached transonic speeds. So the X-1 program was truly a step beyond human experience to that point. Before Chuck Yeager, no human being had traveled faster than the speed of sound. At least none that had ever lived to tell the tale. Walt Williams, who led the X-1 flight test program, said that there was, quote, a very lonely feeling as we began to run out of data in the region of high transonic speeds. Of course, despite crossing a barrier that no one had crossed before, the X-1 program would go on to be a huge success and to make Chuck Yeager a household name. Walt Williams would put those experiences leading the X-1 program to good use when he moved to Florida to head up NASA's flight operations at Cape Canaveral and as the Associate Administrator of Project Mercury. So it is not much wonder, then, that the initial approach of the Mercury program was firmly rooted in a flight test mindset. In fact, the directorate responsible for planning, organizing, and staffing Mercury control was called the Flight Operations Directorate, and the control center was called Mercury Control. The concept of the space mission was still in the future at that point. The most obvious proof of the mindset of the early Mercury program is, of course, provided by the selection of the initial Mercury 7 astronauts. 
There was never any doubt in the minds of the management of the Space Task Group that the first astronauts were going to be universally military test pilots. In fact, only top-rated military test pilots were approached to apply for the new jobs before being competitively selected down to the final seven. As we have talked about before, this heritage of flight testing really informed the entire Mercury program, from its organization to its planned activities, and of course, in the design of the Mercury capsule itself. Project Mercury was conceived, designed, and in the early days implemented as a flight test program to determine if a human being could be launched into space and kept there for at least three orbits before returning them to the planet safely. So, when the team began filing into the new purpose-built Mercury Control Center in Cape Canaveral, they were pretty much one and all, steeped in the discipline of high-speed flight testing. Not all of them came from NACA. As we've talked about before, Gene Kranz, like many others, came from other military aerospace programs. Many of them had military backgrounds. Almost all of them had some background in flight research and flight testing. And this approach, by and large, stood Project Mercury in good stead in the early days. The first two orbital flights, in particular, were very similar to high-speed flight test campaigns, like the X-series planes. The latest of which, the X-15, was capable of reaching the very edge of space itself. The flights were only a few minutes long, the distance traveled downrange was only a few hundred miles. The speeds obtained were not all that much higher than those experienced by the X-15. The only operational parameters that really exceeded any flight test program to date was the altitude achieved and the lack of gravity experienced by the pilot. But with John Glenn's flight, the first orbital flight, the flight control team truly entered a new regime. Now suddenly they were not just running a short flight to test some new designs or to determine some flight parameters. Now they were running a mission. A mission that lasted for a few hours, but more importantly, a mission where the pilot and their test vehicle were literally on the other side of the planet from them. Uh, the changes in their role in this new uh, paradigm were subtle, but they were profound. The most obvious first difference was that the control team was now spread out over an entire planet. The subtle effect of this change was that knowledge and expertise had to be distributed across a much wider team than was typically necessary for flight control operations, where usually systems expertise could be concentrated in a single individual. Now the top knowledge had to be spread across the entire team. The second obvious impact was the length of the flight and the amount of interaction required with the test pilot or crew. In typical flight test environments, the flights might last maybe a few hours, but the period of testing was actually quite short. Most of the flight was routine, requiring a bit of monitoring from the ground, but not much detailed interaction or problem solving. In the new environment, there was no such thing as a routine moment. The flight control team and the astronaut on orbit were in full-on test mode for the entire flight. And rather than testing a few isolated systems or maneuvers, everything, the capsule, the astronaut, and in fact all of their plans and procedures, were under test the entire time. In fact, the team was to discover, time and again, any time they relaxed and started to feel like they were just clicking off the miles, some small anomaly would appear, which, if left uninvestigated, could eventually become a mission and life-threatening emergency. 
because that was really the essential difference between mission control and flight control. For the new Terranauts, they were not just performing an engineering test. They were flying a mission, and no matter what else happened, they had to get home safely. In a flight test environment, if things started to go horribly wrong, the final backup plan could almost always be to get everything stable and find a place to land, or, failing that, eject safely and live to test another day, even if the aircraft was lost. Which is not to say that flight test environments were not dangerous, because pilots did lose their lives through testing. But there was always an option of terminating the flight early to avoid imminent tragedy. This was definitely not true once orbital flight began. Once the spacecraft and the astronaut were given a go for orbital insertion, the only way to end the mission without tragedy was to end it successfully. Failure was not an option anymore. And this led to the really fundamental change in the culture that marked space mission control as different from a flight test environment, which was the focus on planning for failure and contingency. More and more, as mission controllers prepared for life on orbit, they found themselves spending time in simulation rather than in flight. It's no exaggeration to say that even early Mercury program flight controllers were spending much more time on console and in sims than they were during missions. And the purpose of these sims was not simply to train individual flight controllers or astronauts in how to deal with contingencies. It was to train the whole team to work together because the other fact that was becoming obvious was that a spacecraft, even more than an aircraft, was an integrated system. Failures in one system or changes in one procedure could rapidly cascade into issues in other systems that might, at first, appear entirely unrelated. The classic instance of this effect was during the last Mercury flight, when as the sensor responsible for sensing the onset of gravity failed, but in so doing, it took the entire re-entry autopilot system offline because that system would not engage if it thought the spacecraft had already left orbit. The net effect of all of this was that flight test engineering and flight control gradually morphed into a brand new discipline, spacecraft mission control. And along with it came a new culture and new traditions. And by the end of the Mercury program, the culture of mission control had been firmly established and the first generation of mission controllers was training, or already had trained, the next generation. And this is very much the point in the story of mission control that we had already reached in our earlier episodes in the history of Project Mercury. But I wanted to review it again with a particular emphasis on the culture of mission control. Because in our next episode, we're going to take a look at the job of being a flight controller and the culture of mission control and how it continued to develop through the years of the Gemini and Apollo programs and beyond into the space shuttle era and how that well-established culture then collided with the new reality of the proposed International Space Station in very interesting ways. And, as I promised, after that we're going to spend some time talking to some Terranauts who are actually there as the space station was being planned and built and operated and find out what that was really like. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.